Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey everybody, this is your host Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I'm joined by Carl Christensen, who is a founder of a company called Spacemaker AI. Welcome to the show, Carl. Thanks. Spacemaker built products uh, that use AI for urban development. So as a standalone company, the, comp- the, the startup was not around for very long. Uh, you guys were founded in 2016. Uh, so over the past four years, you raised $30 million in venture money, hired over 100 people. Uh, you were declared a startup of the year in Norway in 2019. And in 2020, you were sold for just shy of $250 million. So a very short-lived four years, but a very uh, event-packed four years. Um, I want to start off by understanding more about the problem that you guys set out to solve. I found an interview that you gave a few years back uh, where you described this problem, and I I really like the quote, so I want to read it out. Um, You said that the population growth in the world is huge, and we're building something like the city of Paris each week. So what's going on right now is that for the foreseeable, that's going on right now, and that will go on for the foreseeable future. And that means that every non-optimal project that's built today is a missed opportunity for changing the world. And this will go on for the next few decades. So I want to start off by, by I would love for you to elaborate on this a little bit. Uh, what is the problem with the way the cities are built today? Yeah, uh, thanks. So uh, I th- of course, this, this problem, uh, not surprisingly, fascinates, fascinates me and, 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 and really um the, the thing that opened my eyes to this was was my co-founder Howard which is an architect and he kind of uh, he experienced the the pain uh, of, of urban development personally and that was kind of the start of us starting to talk about how we could improve it but also my journey into trying to kind of or, or discovering this problem um, and it's interesting because it's so global and so it's it's everywhere and it's around us but it's not something we kind of experience uh, as people, because it's uh, kind of it, um, it's very local, but it, it's just when you kind of add it up that it becomes a huge problem. So, generally, people are moving to cities, and there are many reasons for that. But it's uh, so it's it, it, in some areas it, it kind of feels political, and people talk about kind of um, that uh, there, there are that that some like political party could change that, and that people could move out out of the city but for many just for many reasons people are moving to cities if it's in nairobi or if it's oslo or if it's in new york urbanization is a is a global trend and it's accelerating so that means that people are moving to cities and cities are trying to deal with that so uh, many people have experienced that they um um, that there's kind of a, an urban development or a densification that, that they're building more buildings uh, close to them, or they know know an area uh, or or have friends that live in an area where there's densification, and there's a phenomenon called nimbyism, not in my backyard, where people kind of oppose that, and there's a lot of friction. Mm-hmm. Um, but for cities, they don't have a choice; they have to accommodate new inhabitants, so people moving to the cities, and they have to do that in a sustainable way. Uh, they have to make uh, the, the city livable with high living qualities today, but it also has to pass on 
a high quality kind of environment uh, for uh, the future. So uh, the complexity that goes into that has increased a lot because of the density. So um, when kind of, uh, if you look a hundred years back, it, the construction and, and building cities was much easier because you don't, didn't have that much density and you didn't have the need for speed that you not have now and you didn't have the awareness of sustainability either. So the requirements of quality and living quality wasn't that high. But with all of these increased uh, demands, um, the construction industry has not kept up. So the construction industry is the is one of the like it's one of the biggest industries in the world, but it's also one of the laggards. So uh, most other industries have kind of uh, been digitized to some extent. So they like for the last thirty years, most industries have become more productive based on dig digital processes. And many think that, that or there is a lot of opportunity for more digitization, of course, in many industries. But in the construction industry. Productivity has been flat or falling for the last 50 years. So they're not digitizing at all. So there's there's a huge, huge gap and it's increasing. So when you're compounding this, like you have a lot of new, more difficult demands, it's a lot more complexity. You have to handle all of this. And, and at the same time, you don't have digital processes or tools that becomes a huge problem. So uh, that's uh, what I was trying to say with the, um, with the quote that you mentioned that the opportunities that are lost now have a huge impact because the built environment lasts for so long as well. Mm -hmm. So what we're build, building now kind of really sets a footprint into long time into the future. And that's why it's, it's really, really urgent to, to fix this problem. And that's uh, why we started Spacemaker. So a lot of people are moving into cities. Uh, the urban planning slash construction industry has not really uh, kept up with such demand and it hasn't kept up with the digitalization like you mentioned what is the i guess what is the end result of this like you, you mentioned in that quote that non-optimal urban planning what can you give us an example of what non-optimal urban planning means like and maybe contrast that with optimal urban planning yeah yeah so i guess uh, there there are two sides to that the first i can give an example of, of what i would call a kind of bad solutions or bad Quality, but then also uh, the definition of optimal here is is uh, is interesting. So, uh, if you look at it, kind of very um, on the kind of tangible elements of living quality, um, you have uh, things like daylight uh, and noise. Those are two examples of like physical qualities that really affect the uh, quality of life of an inhabitant living in um, a dwelling, like uh, an apartment. And it, it really uh, affects their lifespan. So both the, the uh, like bad daylight and, 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 and noise and high noise levels actually creates uh, depression and, uh, and also shorter lifespans. And, but also uh, outside living like qualities like in, um, in the courtyards or, or the streets outside a building that gets affected by a development. Um, uh, has uh, consequences on the kind of social fabric and structure of uh, an area where you can kind of you can uh, create uh, the uh, a situation that uh, kind of um, promotes um, uh, high, a high kind of um, activity mm -hmm. on on the what you would call the kind of the urban floor, kind of the first like uh, the courtyards and, and the streets, etc. 
or you could have a, a living environment that and kind of detracts from that and, and creates uh, situations where you, you can, which would increase crime and, and, and things like that. So there's a lot of kind of physical elements to it. But at the same time, um, urban uh, uh, development is, uh, and, and architecture uh, is, uh, is also kind of a soft um, uh, uh, discipline. And that means that there's no kind of completely unbiased definition of optimal it's it's a lot of it's a lot about trade-offs so like technically if you want uh, if you want uh, the one, one kind of building to have the best kind of daylight uh, you could just build it like 500 stories high <laughs> and and the people in that building would get great daylight but it would affect um, the area around it in a negative way mm -hmm. so you, you have to uh, you have to balance those uh, qualities and of course also balance costs and other things but um, to us it, it's never been about kind of creating like taking over and defining a perfect solution but giving um, the uh, the stakeholders and the team that tries to come up with a good solution um, good alternatives and also a very transparent and predictable way of showing the uh, outcomes and the consequences of the different trade-offs so you need to be able to choose between good options and you need to discuss why is that good or why is that bad. We could put two floors extra on this development. It would give more utilization and those top floors would be great, but it would take um, away something from the neighbors, for example. And the, 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 the kind of ultimate decision often lies with a, a democratic uh, entity in the city that decides kind of what should we build. Uh, so we're not kind of taking uh, like taking that away in any way. We're just supporting that process and giving much more structure and quality to the decisions by coming up with great alternatives much faster. Mm -hmm. So for, in, in layman's terms, uh, SpaceMaker essentially takes, let's say, a lot of land and it gives, a, it generates a bunch of options uh, that the architect and the people involved in, in actually making these decisions can actually choose from based on a bunch of different attributes, like you mentioned, sunlight and noise level and building height and, and things like that. Is, that, is that, a, is that an accurate description? Yes. I would also add that it's not just about generating and deciding, it's about uh, generating and iterating. So we also say that another way of, of looking at SpaceMaker is that we reduce the cost and time of a design iteration. Mm -hmm. Because it's a lot of uh, the decision making comes around kind of seeing uh, what you can do and then reacting to that and then changing it. So we're not kind of giving you just kind of a set menu and you have to choose from that. You, you're giving you're given kind of an incremental improvement and then you can um, then you can react to that and you can edit it. If you're a designer, you can kind of change the architecture, for example, or you can or you can change the parameters and then iterate again. So that's a very important element uh, of of kind of giving the control to um, to the uh, team that's designing, and this is kind of where the, our approach to AI comes in. Where um, a, a kind of black box AI approach would be that you just generate a, a set solution and say that kind of this is this is uh, the alternative, take it or leave it. And the AI has figured out that this is a good alternative, so you should do it. Well, we say that we want to be an AI on the shoulder which is more kind of a guide and giving you help, but you're in control. And that's very important for uh, this kind of design process where 
um, where it's very hard uh, to kind of get it right and, and capture all of the preferences of the user up front. So prior to SpaceMaker, how would non-tech-savvy or non-very-tech-savvy uh, urban planners do urban planning? Um, would they come up with a few options like or a space AI does now, or is that too costly? Takes too much time. Would they just wing it? How how was the the process of urban planning before um, digital products done? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm I wouldn't um, I think I would be stepping on toes if I said that it's they that they would wing it. But I guess a better way of of uh, saying it is that they would use their intuition. Mm-hmm. So. Um, uh, basically trying to kind of capture the the complexities and trade-offs into their intuition mm-hmm. and using a, a creative process for coming up with alternatives but it's generally the alternatives would be much fewer you would be have much less information about whether these alternatives are alternatives are actually good because you you don't have access to the analyses and simulations that we give you where we kind of we give you all of the uh, consequences for all of these different uh, sustainability themes like daylight and, and noise and etc um but uh, furthermore you would not be able to communicate uh, the, the these properties that i'm uh, describing to other stakeholders so a designer would come up with these alternatives and then other stakeholders like the city or the developer would just have to kind of accept that these are the alternatives Mm-hmm. While um, uh, what we what we provide, which is a kind of SaaS-based cloud platform, uh, all of these stakeholders are able to collaborate together and discuss uh, the alternatives. And since it's so easy to change the alternatives and see the see the consequences, they're they're uh, that's what we describe as the design iteration. Uh, their kind of uh, ability to actually kind of creatively try out much more alternatives is much higher. And also uh, what, you, what usually happens in, in a development project is that you learn uh, not only about the site and the design, but you learn about um, uh, like the, there are other things that affects your site. It might be information about the neighbors. It might be uh, the municipality might be planning a new road that you didn't know about when you started the project. Or you might have new information about the market, about what the, what the uh, kind of what people want want to buy. So you you might want to change the product the project uh, kind of uh, a few months down the road, and doing that uh, without having this low cost of change is much harder. And that usually in the kind of pre digital world or without this kind of tool, you would typically just try to retrofit. Uh, these changes into your project and getting a kind of uh, hybrid solution or a solution that's uh, kind of a bad trade-off. So for a company like SpaceMaker, uh, it's not an idea that any two or three uh, startup founders that are generalists can execute. Uh, you need somebody that is uh, pretty strong on the technology side. Since I would imagine there's pretty um, like cutting-edge tech that goes into coming up, the, that goes into executing an idea like this, as well as somebody that comes from an urban planning slash uh, architecture side, which um, which we, we you've mentioned that that seems to be your your co-founder Howard. Um, yeah. When you and Howard met, uh, like you you don't come from a from an architectural background or from an urban planning background, you come from a more technology slash consulting background. Why did you want to get involved in in urban planning? Like, what was it about 
this idea or what was it about the industry of, of construction and, and urban planning that excited you? Yeah. I should first mention that, that we got together because of the third co-founder, Anders, Anders which is in kind of management consulting and, and finance. And, and I knew him and he knew Howard and, and he got connected. But um, I guess uh, I was looking for um, a kind of a big idea where actually solving a problem also technically or product-wise would be a big part of the solution. Because, um, and this was just my personal motivation, like that many startups are much more about market and go-to-market than there are about technology. Mm-hmm. Like technology is commoditized so many, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, but it's just more exciting for someone with a product background and a technology background to get into something where we're building that product is really hard and, and is really a big part of the solution. So that was part of what excited me, but, but, uh, but the actual kind of, the, the the problem being so global and, and affecting basically everyone in the world um, is really inspiring. So that you feel the feeling that you can actually uh, actually change the world physically and actually improve the world physically was just very very exciting and felt like a really rare opportunity. And of course, I, I you have to be aware when you start something like this that an ambition like that that is so global um, might not necessarily come true. Uh, but as I said, the kind of changing even one site in one city mm-hmm. will affect those people for the next like 40 or 50 years. So you're kind of, you're putting, uh, you're actually affecting people for a very long time with that result. So, so that's kind of what really, um, really, really excited me and made me feel that I, I had to, had to do this. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's an impactful component to this. Um, for startups that have um, you know, at, at the most fundamental level are businesses. And, you know, we all live in a capitalistic, capitalistic world um, that also have a component that is uh, impactful. Like in your case, it's environmental and, uh, and social. How do you balance that? Like who from a, um, I guess, from a perspective of your customers, which I would imagine are urban planners and construction firms uh, as well, and the perspective of the end users, which is the, the residents of that city, their interests may be different. So whereas uh, somebody, let's say that's a, that's, a construction work, that's a construction company, they might care more about the bottom line. So the commercial success of the project and less about the, uh, the sunlight, let's say, or the noise, the, the, the noise pollution that the residents would then care about. So how do you balance these two um, sides of uh, of an of, of a company that can have both a commercial aspect and, a, and an impact aspect, and they may not always be the same. Well, I just kind of uh, uh, I guess I would shortly uh, just comment that one of the things that is amazing about <laughs> the the space maker idea is that the thing the, the the things you mentioned are not competing in this case, so there are no losers. In in uh, in the kind of uh, in the approach. So even though even though the different stakeholders care about different things, mm-hmm. if you can if you can come up with solutions that are kind of higher quality, much faster, everybody wins because mm-hmm. um, the 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 developer or the construction company they carry a lot of risk when the, when building something that might not be approved. By the, by the local government, or might not be attractive to people living in them. 
like the, the, the residents that are going to either buy or rent the apartment. So if they can create something that everybody loves uh, with kind of better utilization, so they can actually build more apartments with higher quality faster, there are no losers. So that's kind of a magical business proposition, which is also part of what was really exciting about SpaceMaker. But of course, just kind of trying to still kind of answer the question about what's hard <clears throat> is that there's still a difference between kind of a buyer and a user or an end user. So <clears throat> one, one element that um, I, I could mention there is uh, this uh, black box AI versus AI on the shoulder that I, um, I mentioned earlier. So uh, when you're in, in a, making a buying decision, a black box AI is actually very attractive because it's a, people like to buy magic. Like, can, can you sell me a magic box that can fix my problems? I want that. Mm -hmm. um, but using it, using a black box is very hard because if you're making decisions, you want to understand those decisions. And you want, this is kind of one of the big criticisms of AI, right? Because it just gives you an answer, but it can't really reason about why it gave you those answers. And if you, if you want to make a decision based on that, uh, then it becomes very hard. So you need to have a kind of an incremental approach where the user and the decision maker is very much in the driving seat. So that's one of the places where we've had to be very focused on kind of the long game in that and not be tempted to create this magic. And it's actually, it's a very common kind of uh, com uh, comment that we get from users and also buyers that they, they're asking kind of, where is the AI? Where's the AI? Mm -hmm. Because uh, we're not kind of, uh, it's, it's, uh, we're not showing off, like it's just hidden in, in the interactions. So it's more kind of, a, uh, it's more that you get assistance all the time and not kind of a big flashy kind of AI sign or kind of some sprinkles that's coming into the product. So uh, we're very much focused on creating a user experience that sticks over time and creates value over time versus something that's just easy to sell because uh, that would be much easier to build, but it wouldn't create a, uh, a sustainable user experience that people would create value from. So this long-term thinking approach and the win-win-win solution that you mentioned definitely seemed to resonate with your customers. Within two weeks of launching, you guys had over 100 interested clients. Uh, you then went on to raise over 30 million from uh, some of the top VCs in Europe. Uh, when you guys got to a point where you had to scale up the team and you guys started off in Norway, um, how was it like to, to hire uh, people for a early stage startup in Norway. What's, what's the general startup ecosystem in, in Nordic countries like? Well, uh, that's, that's a, a very good question. So, you know, it's a, um, Norway is a small country. Uh, uh, so that, of course, can be a limitation, you could say. Mm -hmm. and, and Norway has uh, a startup ecosystem that is not very well developed. It's not, it doesn't have kind of uh, a long list of unicorns coming out of the, the country. Uh, Sweden, which is our cl closest neighbor, has a lot more, like Spotify and Klarna and uh, a lot of other examples. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of, so, so uh, when we started out, uh, we, didn't, we, we couldn't really recruit that much from uh, other product companies. There weren't that many. So... We rather recruited a lot from, from uh, consulting and other industries that there were uh, 
that had kind of available talent. And, uh, but fo focus on the typologies of type of talent that, that would typically thrive in a product uh, startup, uh, kind of creative um, generalists in many ways um, that uh, were really uh, strongly connected to our vision and, and really believed in what we wanted to build. But uh, it was still... Um, it was still hard kind of locating the talent so it's it went a lot it was a lot about uh, a network and and uh, and going through uh, the networks that we had and really just selling the vision very very hard like working really hard on articulating the the vision and what we were trying to build and and how we would build it so that um the the talent would see that they could actually like it it seemed even though it was very ambitious it, it, ambitious it seemed feasible that we would able be able to to build this and they could see how they could contribute and be an important part of that and and that was kind of uh, to us at least looking back was the most important element of of how we recruited because our our hit rate was very very high when we when we found the talent that we really wanted a very high proportion of those actually said yes uh, and um, I think that was because of uh, that the vision that we were able to communicate is very compelling, but it's also very kind of robust in in the way that you can you can understand it and you can also uh, see that you can play a part as as working in the company. So the situation in Norway seems to be similar to many countries in Eastern Europe, uh, meaning that the IT tech industry is quite large, but it's mostly fo mostly um, focused on consulting and service based businesses. And uh, the startup ecosystem is is quite small. Uh, you mentioned that when you guys found talent that you like, you had a pretty high hit rate in convincing them to join. But how did you actually filter uh, when 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 searching for uh, candidates from consulting companies? How did you filter for those that would be a good fit for an early stage startup? And uh, maybe a follow on question to that is: once you had them on board, how did you make sure that they would actually strive uh, in an early startup environment where it's pretty much chaos? In many cases, at least. Yeah, I guess it's good. So, so in the first case, uh, we we did a lot of we worked, as I said, through uh, our network and our network of net of networks, if you will. So, so we talked to people that we knew, and we presented. We didn't ask for kind of can you give me a list of people that I should try to hire, but we 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 asked about what kind of person. Uh, you know that would that should have the opportunity to know about SpaceMaker, and then so kind of discussing a lot about what kind of persons we were looking for, but also what kind of persons would um, uh, sh should should uh, get this kind of opportunity it was a great way of kind of engaging the network in thinking uh, and helping us think about what kind of talent we should approach. So I guess that was kind of the simple and difficult answer to the first one. And the second one, uh, I guess, um, we're not that, uh, or I'm not sure what's, what's normal uh, with different startups, but at least for us, we kind of knew that we needed to be a big company to, to reach the ambitions that we had. Mm -hmm. And for us, that meant investing very, very early in building uh, a company that was robust. So... We didn't kind of want to have chaos. Um, we were all the founders are all um, 
uh, we're all about 35 years old when we started. We had a lot of experience from uh, organizations and uh, I've managed pretty large teams before. Mm -hmm. So uh, finding a way of, of rather than thinking of, of the startup as uh, a chaos, uh, we, we tried to build just a small organization that was scalable. So more of an agile organization than a chaos organization. Um, and of course, it's a lot of work and hard work to, to get an organization going. And I'm sure a lot of the people that uh, started would say that it was chaos. But I still uh, felt that at, at most uh, kind of stages we had, it was pretty organized for the, the size that the company had. So uh, that was a lot of hard work trying to kind of stay ahead of, of our size and kind of have an organization that was uh, at least as mature as we needed to be. But uh, that, I think that was very, very helpful in both making people productive and making them really, really uh, passionate about uh, the company and staying on uh, for the journey. So your recruiting process uh, seems to have worked quite well. You guys are a team of 115 people now, uh, just four years into the company. Uh, Two and a half months ago, you were acquired by Autodesk for $240 million in cash. Um, how did you guys get in contact with Autodesk? Uh, how long have you guys been in contact with? Can you share more info around that? Yeah, sure. So um, we've had the fortune of being... We've been, uh, we kind of defined a new category, right? We, we came up with something that nobody else was doing. And, and that's always, or at least often, something that attracts attention from investors. So we've had a lot of inbound interest from investors and, and different companies for a long time. And we've never actually reached out to any investor or other company. Um, and we had over 100 VCs that contacted us before we did the Series A, which uh, was, of course, very flattering, but it also kind of it was a bit of a problem in terms of capacity. But luckily, Anders, the third co-founder, uh, he, he was able to spend uh, significant uh, time uh, of his time to, to, uh, to kind of sort out and, and build uh, relations with, with these investors so that we could kind of uh, uh, raise funding comfortably uh, at the time that uh, felt right to us. Mm -hmm which was kind of the strategy with the Series A. But it also meant that we could kind of uh, pick up the phone when uh, companies like Autodesk kind of uh, contacted us uh, without uh, having any kind of commitment or plan of, of going anywhere with that. So we've had some conversations with Autodesk uh, several times, uh, but with no intention of, of going into any kind of relationship and, uh, but it was um, about a year ago uh, that they contacted us to to kind of have a meeting, uh, and not with an intention of, uh, or at least not saying that there was an intention of of any kind of deeper relationship, but just kind of mutually uh, exchanging ideas. And we realized uh, how um, how much Autodesk really understood about the problem that we were trying to solve, and. Uh, just for context, generally very few people uh, are aware of the problem and, 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 and let alone have any kind of idea about how to solve it. So hmm. usually when we kind of have to pitch uh, our product and what we're doing, even to the industry, we have to explain at least as much as, as uh, I had to explain in the start of this uh, uh, episode uh, 
and um, most people did not have a conscious idea about how to really approach the problem we were solving. But Autodesk had really seen and understood that this is a huge problem, and they they are very motivated and ready to kind of reinvent themselves to solve this problem. But they also saw that uh, we were the only ones that had really been able to actually come up with a compelling solution and approach to actually solving the core problem. So um, even though we had a very clear plan of uh, having a, a standalone journey, and that was, that's been our plan all along, we realized that uh, the, the kind of alignment of vision that we had with Autodesk meant that they would be able to accelerate our path to actually succeed in, in, in what we want to do, which is changing the way cities are designed in all cities over the world as fast as possible, right? Because this is a problem that's accelerating. The ability to do that through Autodesk was uh, kind of uh, much, much uh, more realistic, really, and, and much, uh, much, much faster than, than scaling the commercial, uh, especially organization, but also kind of the product and platform ecosystem that we would need to build uh, ourselves. Um, so getting that throughout it has just seemed like a perfect fit. Um, and that's that kind of what led to the, the continued discussions that also led to the acquisition. Awesome. Well, it's great to see that um, the acquisition is not just kind of the financial side of things, uh, but it you, you guys were also you guys were able to join with a company that would uh, not only continue the mission that you set out to build, uh, but hopefully help you accelerate that as well. Um, I want to end off by asking a few forward thinking questions. Uh, in one of the interviews, your co-founder Howard uh, mentioned that SpaceMaker has built only five percent of what can be built. Uh, what's the what's the other ninety five percent in your opinion? <laughs> well, um, uh, it, I guess uh, summing up all of those ninety five percent can take some time, but it's really about uh, connecting uh, more and more of uh, the the workflows that's needed to really automate and and create uh, or release the potential. I would say of of creating better outcomes and better solutions in cities, but also connecting them downstream to really have a digital value chain that can uh, really accelerate and improve quality of construction as well and improve the sustainability of those processes. And also expanding um, to uh, all the markets in the world will require uh, our product to be more configurable and more extendable than it is now. And then also expanding to all other verticals because uh, we are, we've started in residential, but uh, the the problems of uh, kind of construction uh, construction and the problems that that we've described in this uh, podcast are the same in in other verticals of construction, and we think that we can contribute a lot to uh, other verticals as well. So, uh, commercial uh, buildings, hospitals. Um, hotels and even roads or, or airports you name it so we think there's a lot we that we think that there's a lot we can contribute to to um all all verticals of of uh, this industry so we're looking forward to doing that together with autodesk mm -hmm. so the the technology that you guys invented is um in, i guess in some ways falls into the bucket of ai assisted design 
and you mentioned uh, some of the ways that you guys would be looking to expand over the next couple of years is to go into other verticals of uh, construction and development. Um, but what other areas besides the physical world of construction and development do you think that such technology of AI-assisted design uh, could be useful in? For example, would uh, such approach uh, be useful in uh, app design or website design or maybe other other areas? I love that question. And we've discussed that, of course, as part of our own design process, that we would love to have a space maker um, kind of uh, guiding us. I think that um, at least uh, to me, uh, the approach that we've taken is transferable because I think that the approach that most most is taking is trying to commoditize uh, the the kind of building blocks, right? To to uh, to kind of uh, come up with kind of low code or no code solutions, and I th- think that's great. But you need to provide the the design team or the the one the the, the people that's designing uh, the the app in the in this case, they need to be in control. Right, so having, uh, and that's why we think in iterations to really provide increments that you can reason about and then work with. So um, finding the right increments and the right support uh, level is what I think is kind of the hard part. And, and uh, I think that the approach that, uh, that we've taken to that might be transferable, but it's, very, it's, it's pretty different from the kind of no code, low code approach. So. I would love to see someone try to 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 have take that space maker approach to to app building, and that might uh, and I guess that's a, a a big idea to to move forward with for for someone out there. You mentioned um, AI assisted model, so essentially a combination of human plus some AI tech help is the best model that we have now. Um, how realistic is it that we're going to have fully AI? Um, fully an AI that that takes care of entirely of of the entire architectural process is that do you think that's going to be likely within the foreseeable future or is that too far out? I don't I don't think so, and I, I, that's because I don't think it's uh, desirable. That why not? Um, the the uh, kind of the 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 built environment, which is kind of what you call all of all of the the sum of everything that's around us, mm-hmm. is something that create is a uh, is partly uh, kind of tangible and and something you can calculate, but it's also very emotional. So variation in itself is valuable, and uh, we don't see kind of any convergence uh, that would that in in what is kind of what good looks like. <laughs> for a city that would would kind of provide that uh, ability uh, for an for a kind of machine to actually come up with uh, the the kind of set solution so i i don't think uh, for for architecture i don't think that's going to happen at least we don't, we we're not moving in that direction but um i guess in situations where there's where everyone agrees what the best outcome is uh, I think you might see that more, but uh, that's not uh, what you're seeing in or what's happening in, in, in urban development, at least in, not in, in my view. Awesome. So other architects can rest easy for now. <laughs> AI, AI, AI isn't coming for you anytime soon. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Carl. We're excited to see what Spacemaker uh, goes on to accomplish over the next four years as part of Autodesk. You guys are certainly one of those companies that is not just bringing uh, kind of financial benefit to the industry, but also a lot of impact as well. Thanks for being on the show. 
uh, Andrew. It's been a great interview and a great fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.